You are listening to The Crisis Beat with Dr. Mark Crowther and Brady Wood. Hey now, welcome to The Crisis Beat, episode 12, and it's December 3rd, 2023. My name is Brady Wood. I'm a business owner and public relations professional. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mark Crowther, who in his other life is chair of medicine at McMaster University. Um, so, Mark, uh, I'm starting to worry that this podcast is slowly becoming the Elon Musk and Royal Family podcast, as opposed to a podcast examining crisis communications best practices. But they give us a lot of fodder, these folks. Yeah, we're going to end up talking a lot about Elon Musk, uh, but I think it's actually still relevant with respect to crisis communication because uh, oh, not is. only is... What's that, sorry? It is hugely, yeah. Yeah, because not only... Is it kind of a a lesson in how to avoid precipitating crises, but it's also um, probably some of the prototypical examples of how not to recover from a crisis, particularly since he's had some other notable successes that have been overshadowed by uh, the communication issues that he's having. So I agree completely. It's it's very interesting watching how this exemplifies some of. Uh, the issues we've been talking about through all the through all of the podcasts. I also was pleased to see I did a pretty careful sweep of the news yesterday that maybe somebody from Air Canada is listening to us because Air Canada has not done something so profoundly negative that it's made the news in the last week, which is one of the first times probably since we started doing the podcast, which is excellent. That is very good news. No, I, I am seeing, um, well, I also mentioned maybe that's a good segue into our kind of updates from last week, but our, our previous uh, podcast, which we'll have uploaded shortly, um, we covered off some of the open AI uh, ch- changes at the board level, the firing of Sam Altman. And now I find I found that they've completely tightened up their corporate communications, which I think is is remarkable and good. So now all, of, all you're seeing is an announcement that Sam Altman is the CEO, seen a new board put in place. Ilya Sutskever, the chief scientific officer, has sort of fallen into the background in some way. And the the current board, most of those folks just exited calmly and quietly. So very interesting cleanup on aisle five for OpenAI. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't think we could take credit for that. But they must have also seen that the way they handled that uh, firing of the CEO was really damaging for the organization's reputation. Yeah, and they're the people guarding the future of the planet. So it's really important that they be seen as competent. Totally. Yeah, I was glad to see that the CEO of Microsoft came out this week and said he didn't think that ChatGPT was imminently going to wipe out life on or human life, uh, carefully phrased in the term imminently, uh, (laughs) because at least Microsoft, I think, has a trustworthy board and communication strategy and traditional corporate culture. So that's that's good. And Mark, did he say that malafluously? Yes, he did. Yes, <laughs> we were joking uh, that you mentioned as I turned my mic on and got it finally working that my my sound was mellifluous, which I think is a remarkably great word. So we'll just we'll just have a little uh, break here for the word of the day. The word of the day on the crisis beat is mellifluous. Yeah, and that's actually good for crisis communication. If you if you're trying to come across as being calm, cool, and professional using a staticky, not good bandwidth. Uh, recording media is 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 going to detract from your message. So the more FM radio, and for those of you who don't know what that is, that's a traditional way of listening to things that doesn't involve the internet. Uh, your voices, the better your communication style is going to be. That, that's fair too. Um, Mark, what did you think about, um, so also the royal family back in the news in a kind of unexpected way. I think Charles and Kate Middleton on the, King Charles and Kate Middleton on the, on the back foot because they were revealed as the two people 
um, that were alluded to in Prince Harry's memoir as being the folks that were a bit racist, asking what color the baby would be. So there was a new uh, a new biography by a sympathetic biographer, and uh, to Harry and Meghan, who actually uh, I think it was in the somewhere in Australia or New Zealand, they published the version of that person's biography where those folks were identified. And so that sort of made the news. But it, it did seem to, at least per the New York Times, and we'll share this article, it seemed to drum up a bit, a, quite a bit of negative sentiment among the royals. And yes, this uh, the, the book in, in question is called Endgame, Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival by Omid Scobie. Yeah, it was actually in the Netherlands. Dutch. Yeah, um, Netherlands, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah and, and interestingly enough, I, I was... Uh... It strikes me as having been a brilliant pre-planned publicity stunt for the book because no one would ever heard of the book until this came along. And then suddenly this well-timed, carefully subscribed leak led to millions of people talking about this book and sales probably went through the roof. So good good on him to actually figure out a way of promoting the book. The leak occurred in a country, if it occurred in Britain, that would have been probably subject to its libel laws. But the fact it occurred somewhere else actually worked out really, really nicely for everybody. Probably led to uh, Dutch versions selling madly and now a black market for the pulled version because they've apparently pulled all the ones they had and they're going to reprint them, which is a big problem. Yeah, no, I think there was still some libel implication that that was, that was they did seem to try to tamp that down quite quickly. And it took a few days for the actual news to be revealed of who the the quote, quote so-called racist royals were. So, um, but yeah, I'm not sure, Mark, did you see any, any fall like from the Royal family itself on this or. No, I think that this is just illustrates the great point that we've been talking about through the whole thing, Brady, that uh, there are, there are a group of people who can just ride out bad news. And I suspect the Royals will just do what they always do, which is, be like a Galapagos turtle, a tortoise, and hide inside their shell for a while, and then they'll come back out, and nothing. They could just have run off their back, um, irrespective of how unpleasant the actual accusations are. Uh, the damage in all this is probably going to land back on Harry and Meghan, I think, because now they've you know they're telling tales out of school. Because the guy must have got the information from somewhere. The only place he could have gotten that information from, unless he completely made it up, is from them. So, you know, now there's if this isn't spun correctly, they're going to appear to be the leakers in all this. Mm -hmm. I I will say, though, some of the British press did seem to have kind of daggers out for for the king to some degree. But I I think he's still getting a pretty, pretty easy ride. You know, it's not like what's well, I don't know if I I don't want to skip our air if there isn't any other updates, but. That does lead us to our main event of speaking about Elon Musk. If you'd like to, if you'd like to make that segue now, Mark. Yeah, let's make that segue into <laughs> Elon. I was going to mention Air Canada, but I did already, so we're good there. So, Elon Musk. Yeah, so we've talked extensively about Elon Musk. It needs no introduction, obviously, as uh, the leading ventures like, um, well, co-founder of PayPal, SpaceX, Tesla, the Boring Company, Neuralink, Starlink, an initial founder of OpenAI, et cetera, et cetera, and recent, somewhat recent purchaser of. Twitter, which he has renamed X.com, which he seems to be nosediving into the ground relatively quickly. If you if you read the the news just as a straight up fact, I think you and I have debated, you know, if he loses 75 million in in revenue from advertisers and the total ad revenue is four billion, like what kind of a hit is that? Um, so and in any case, because of his uh, sort of volatile personality and communications, he's been a frequent topic of discussion on this podcast. 
So last episode, we delved into a crisis he was facing about anti-Semitic issues. And it's worth noting, um, you know, due to what's going on in the Middle East, pretty difficult time on the planet for all of us. Um, but I, I, I think maybe it's worthwhile to do another quick summary of what that incident was that kind of kicked this off. So the controversy originated with Elon Musk's response to a post on, on Twitter. The initial discussion centered on anti-Semitism amid the Israel-Hamas conflict. Musk replied to a comment that insinuated that Jewish communities were fostering hatred against whites and promoting immigration of minorities who, according to the commenter, were not in favor of the Jewish community. And his response was a blunt, you have said the actual truth. And so immediately, myriad advertisers withdrew. We talked about this last week. Warner Brothers, Discovery, Sony, IBM, Apple, Lionsgate, Paramount paused their advertising on the platform. And he sort of backpedaled and said that this was really, or clarified, he, he would claim he clarified that um, that uh, effectively his his um, laser beam was actually aimed at the Anti-Defamation League and their sort of approach. And so I do think this one has dinged him in a way that seems more significant. So that's where we left off last time. We were, you and I were contemplating how bad will this get? Is it really that significant? Can he do damage control? I think, Mark, you and I both thought Elon Musk was pretty Teflon, and maybe he would just weather this. And also, perhaps there was some, and I still wonder about this, what's this long, what's the longer term strategy? Like, what is he tanking Twitter for some specific reason to rebound in some other direction? Does it give him more power to do that? But then this happened. <laughs> so this week, he was at a New York Times Deal Book Summit event. And when he was asked about advertisers leaving the platform in response to this, Elon Musk replied uh, to the advertisers that his answer was, go F yourself, which I think was pretty remarkable. He said it several times that he wouldn't be held hostage by people saying they would withdraw advertising dollars. So this, again, had, uh, sorry for the long summary here, but this had some fast consequences. So a lot of brands seem to now be saying there's reputational risk for us being on Twitter. Many came forward through their you know, large-scale branding agencies to say they will not now resume advertising in the foreseeable future. And then, Mark, you sent me this great article where the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, said she is quitting the platform and called X.com a global sewer that exacerbates conflicts and where facts don't matter. So I think we've got a lot to discuss on this one, actually. I've kind of framed up some questions for us to contemplate. Um, but I mean, where where are you at generally in your headspace of viewing all this, Mark? Has it changed your perception? Well, just a couple of some more context to frame this within. So the first is that Elon had done a quick trip to Israel. I think I didn't look this up, but I believe I read that in the news. I'm not sure exactly if that what that accomplished or with whom he met, but I'm sure that he felt it to be valuable. Tesla or the the uh, Musk Inc has had a number of big successes in the last couple of weeks, which this has really overshadowed. Uh, one is the launch of the much-heralded Cybertruck, which I know is going to uh, have a big splash, uh, even if it looks weird. And uh, the uh, people who love their F-150s, I say this as a former F-150 owner, uh, think is not a pickup truck. I'm sure that it's going to sell enormously. There's lots of positive buzz about its performance and its characteristics on the internet. So that's great. Uh, and then uh, the super heavy uh, rocket had a largely successful launch this week, um, exploded spectacularly at the end, as they seem to want to do. But that's the way they design things at SpaceX. It accomplished most of its initial goals. People were complaining about the fact that the main booster didn't make it back to Earth 
which is a really weird context because other than Elon Musk's company, nobody has ever landed a booster before. So it's like, oh my God, it was a great failure. Well, actually, that's just what everybody else does. Uh, so, you know, and, and this controversy, so not only has it damaged the brand of Twitter, but it it has overshadowed at least two major events that would have otherwise probably both made front page news that would have been positive for the greater entity of Musk Incorporated. Um, uh, so I think in terms of your summary, Brady, completely accurate as always. Uh, the comments most recently really seem to have uh, damaged the brand and, you know, brands recover as we talk about. But more importantly, it's you know, the guy is hyper, hyper intelligent, so I would never seek to discount his ability to think forward in time. However, it's hard to know what the outcome here is. Like, really, it's hard to know where he's going with all this at the present time. And I, I'm starting to fear that he may be going nowhere at all with it. What are, what are your thoughts about this whole thing, Brady, from a communications professional standpoint? Well, I, I echo your sentiment that, you know, public personal conduct of a high profile CEO just can have myriad ramifications and especially when that person's not being careful and in this case this person is the head of multiple companies i actually saw there's a a sort of um nonsensical um conspiracy theorist from the uk named david ike are you familiar with this person he thinks that there's some reptilian cabal controlling the earth but he made a good point on twitter which is how is it possible that Elon Musk is overseeing all of these companies as a truly engaged and effective CEO and who's actually pulling the strings behind him? So I found that interesting. I don't believe in that conspiracy that Elon Musk is being propped up to do something. But it did remind me that Elon Musk is the face of all of these brands. So you're right. He makes one wrong move and all of them have negative potential ramifications. And so you would certainly want to see someone being far more cognizant of their public image, unless there's method in the madness, again, which is how does Elon Musk stay on the front page of the newspaper, no matter what, almost a Trumpian strategy. Um, but I and I also think that, you know, I'm surprised that he's, he's, it seems like he recognized to some degree that he made a mistake, but didn't have the empathy and speed of keystroke to ultimately put together a response that could just close out the crisis for himself so i think if he had said this is what i meant and i'm like there's definitely no apology i don't think um or it certainly didn't come through in those in, in those initial days although yeah and, and I, I don't know what to make of the publicity stuff of going to israel and going yeah i think he went to a kibbutz and saw the destruction to some degree but yeah so i, I think there's a few things here the ceo's role quick response and empathy um and and i think that it's it's also like you know now, what do those companies do if they wanted to supersede him to repair trust if that's if it's broken? I think ultimately we're we're a bit stuck on this podcast sometimes on measurables. And so we can't we could probably look at share value. And I mean that that might be worthwhile to see. Um, but I do think it takes a bit of an algorithmic uh calculation, like they did for in that you'll remember the Tiger Woods <clears throat> scandal destroyed some $12 billion in in market value for his advertisers. But you have to use a pretty complex algorithm to determine to what degree did that crisis affect those um, that market share. So you have to compare it to where the market was going and in aggregate and all of those sorts of things. So, but I, I think that would be one measurable mark if that's that's part of your question. How do we know if he's doing a bad job? Well, well, certainly if these stocks tank or if the sales of the car, the truck uh, 
are below expectations, et cetera. Yeah, it's it's interesting because unlike a traditional company or group of companies, I, I would be it would be really interesting to actually sit down with the board of directors for each of these companies, uh, give them three glasses of wine uh, to release their uh, super tentorial controls, and then ask them the degree to which they actually feel they're involved in the governance of the companies. And I presume they sit on other governing boards compared to other more traditional companies. Because I, I would suspect that these companies are all, to a greater extent, embodiments of his personality and goals and directions rather than traditionally run corporate entities. Um, I, I, you know, he, No matter how intelligent he is, he can't possibly be managing the day-to-day business of all of these companies simultaneously, which means he must actually, there's no way they can be as successful as they are unless they have an extremely competent, extremely professional uh, group of people doing the grunt work of running companies. Like that is a big business, right? And to run Tesla, you you have to have an army of people doing jobs that make the metal show up at the factory with the lithium, with the plastic and the HR people and the finance people. So, you know, there's no doubt that these companies are extremely well-run, extremely efficient companies because they can continue to operate despite this firestorm of controversy at the highest possible echelon. It's it's really interesting to me. I, I will say um, uh, it, we really do need to watch how this evolves over time because you know, this might be some part of a grand Machiavellian strategy to just keep himself on the front page of the of the social media platforms and newspapers on an ongoing basis, because he certainly succeeded in doing that. I, I do think, however, that the withdrawal of funding from the platform formerly known as Twitter is an existential threat to that platform because people aren't going to pay a subscription fee to belong to it or not enough people are going to. No, there's not so, enough content. I mean, you're going to pay to listen to amateur, you know, opinionators. Yeah. I, I don't like, think it's going to happen. Like us like on us. this. <laughs> like us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so the, uh, so, you know, it might be a $50 billion advertising plot, maybe. Yeah, he's burned, um, yeah, let's say he's burned 20 billion approximately in market value of Twitter so far. Um, I mean, maybe it is worth it. Yeah, he's been on the front page of every single information conveyance platform, positive and negative, on the face of the earth for the last couple of years. That's probably worth twenty. You know, if you were to go to a major advertising platform and say, "How much would it cost for me to get onto the front page of every single news and fake news conveyance vehicle on the earth at least once every three days for eighteen months?" It would cost you twenty billion dollars, I bet, right? Yeah, so, it would. That's true. So there you go. Maybe it's all part of a big plot. <clears throat> I do strongly believe that he's not a lizard. Uh, I think that that is probably highly <laughs> unlikely. That's, you don't believe in David. I don't know if David Icke said he's a lizard, but he certainly said that David Icke has said that other people are lizards. Or there is some, there's some lizard involvement. I don't think there's any lizards here. Um, uh, just uh, one other thing. I think for those who are, if there is anybody listening to this podcast who's who's in a senior leadership position, uh, the point you made right at the start uh, of your of the, of the thing is critically important in crisis communication, and that is you have to be extraordinarily careful about what you say and do under every single circumstance because 
you will never know when something you say or do is going to be misinterpreted and go viral. And, you know, for example, I'm in a fairly senior leadership position uh, and I'm extremely careful about what I say and do every single minute of every single day. You know, I scrupulously avoid getting into photographs um, at or other you know, videos at parties or at social events. You know, everything you do, whether you like it or not, if you're running a traditional company, should be designed to keep the focus on the company and off you. For sure. uh, and and that's that's a that's a failure that that I think we've seen a lot is that it becomes about the personality in charge of the company rather than the company. And the key value is the leader's ability to make the company go forward, uh, not the leader. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, we could look at something like, uh, I love that Jim Collins book from many years ago, Good to Great, that talks about what's the ideal CEO phenotype for sort of long, long-term remarkable success. And it's actually quite a humble phenotype. It's the servant leader. It's someone who's got a long history at the company, a very devoted kind of um, values-based leader. And that's that's backed up with like stock market data. You mentioned yes. two traditional companies, Mark, and you know part of what we look at, and I think why Elon Musk comes up is it, it's so off script. So if we were going through what the crisis communications best practices would be here, it's it's a totally opposite script. Um, and we always say yes, it starts before the crisis. So he would have a very manicured style if he was optimally positioned to weather this, and, and certainly would not be writing all this off the cuff stuff in, in the in the first place. You know, part of the company's immune system should be focused on being prepared to eliminate crises by instructing employees and having the right leaders in place. Although you could, we, we've talked exclu- extensively about the uh, last, but without the last president of the United States who, who became the most powerful person on earth. And nobody, I don't think would dispute that uh, despite following a very similar communication strategy. So it, we, it may not, it may not be best practices to do this, but on the other hand, there are notable examples of success <laughs> following this alternate strategy. Or certainly garnering some kind of yielding some win that is, is unexpected. Cause again, that we talk about the playbook, he's also not really deploying the, the empathy <laughs> acknowledging you know uh, but why don't we run through it but i think it would be that he would he would be have clarity and empathy in the communication um we'd see him acknowledging and swiftly addressing this issue and trying to turn the corner on it uh, through understanding of the concerns raised and the steps he'll take to not say something like that online again i mean it sounds absurd saying it i mean this is what we would counsel someone to be doing in his seat but when you think about Elon Musk or Trump doing these things, it's just not there. It's not even within their ballywick. Yeah, in fact, I think it's interesting, isn't it? If they were to call you up as a communication professional and say, uh, Mr. Wood, how do I get out of this nosedive? And then they followed your advice, it would come across as looking completely fake and inauthentic. And it would lead the lizard people to think that they've probably tuned up the neurotoxin they're feeding into his brain that he actually responded like that. So now they've created this alternate crisis response galaxy within which they live uniquely a small group of people. Yeah. I, I don't think that, well, a great example of where someone was not capable of executing the, that kind of strategy was Tiger Woods after his first kind of big affair scandal and he applied, he appeared in a press conference, very sheepishly apologizing. And I mean, the, I guess this really does point to the authenticity point. So 
I'm not saying those folks couldn't get there, but if they did want to kind of reverse this and acknowledge the real failing and turn a corner, they they would have to really embody it. It can't be something that, you know, they it looks like someone off camera has a gun to their head making them do the apology. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be what it would look like if if uh Elon or the Donald got up in front of a an audience and and said that, right? It would look like they were being forced to do it and they operate at a level of control that is so so high up that it would make the so the 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 uh, um people who think the world is being controlled by lizards it would prove their point that there's a higher authority because there is no realistically there's no higher authority than someone like elon musk or the president of the united states or the royal family right it's not like there's a level of of responsibility above them uh, I guess, Brady, we, to get into the heavy stuff for a second here, and I'll ask you this question just because this is beyond my skill set. Um, what's the role of empathy and cultural sensitivity in formulating a crisis response, particularly when it involves extremely difficult ethical and cultural uh, uh, events or, I guess, I'm not even sure what the word is, but anti-Semitism is, has been talked about a lot recently. Like, How does a company go about trying to recover from something that's said by someone that comes across extremely negatively in that domain. Well, again, I, I think so much of crisis takes place in the in the pre-work. So like I, I actually think, especially in the context of what's going on in the Middle East, companies should have an approach to that issue and should be communicating to employees, you know, what their what the company's expectation is around um public communication. And you, you know, you've seen so many people lose their jobs from saying the wrong thing usually usually by saying the wrong thing against uh israel um but i think on both sides we've got folks that are very heightened vigilance for folks saying the wrong thing so my, my first advice would be um unless you have a clear justice objective and you are willing to take the risk um to personal reputation and potentially your company's reputation Folks should steer clear of communicating on the conflict in the Middle East, unless you're some kind of expert in that area, or again, you have some specific social justice objective and you know the consequences of doing that. But then secondly, I think um, I, I would say companies are pro should be prayerful that if there is some kind of flub in that, in that realm where there's these cultural sensitivities, that at least it was someone hopefully equivocated. So I think that if there's no if there's no wriggle wiggle room, you've unequivocally said something anti-Semitic. I, I think it could alter or 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 racist in general. I would I would hope the same would be said if someone said something racist about the Palestinian people. Um, you know, on both sides, it would be a, a case of that. It, it, there's pretty terminal and swift consequences in the world to that. So in terms of recovery, if it was a CEO, they might have to step down and have a board chairs say that this is unequivocally not the way our company operates or the expectation. And if it was an employee, I mean, I, I, I do see the I, I do see the sense in someone losing uh, a role if they aren't cautious in the way they communicate about social issues in a way that could blow back upon the company. Now, there's all kinds of HR involvement here too. what are people allowed to say freedom of speech, etc. But I think most private companies do have the ability to um, exit relationships based on these kinds of things. And, and then again, if, if the company itself was seen in some kind of systemic way to behave in a racist manner, they would have to completely reverse course. And I would recommend an over-the-top strategy where they are doing everything they can to contribute meaningfully to anti-racist objectives. Yeah, I, it, it just strikes me that 
I think your your point about unless this is part of your core business, and there are obviously entities for whom this is part of their core business. You know, if you're making widgets, you just got to stay out of this area, no matter how strong your personal feelings are, because there is no win-win in these discussions. There just is not. And that the that the the focus of a widget making company should be making the world's best widgets. That's just as far as I, I think you should go. I, I will say, Brady, it's it's I don't know if we ever would have the bandwidth to actually do this. It would be interesting to explore both in Canada, the United States and in Britain, um, what the what the right to free speech actually means, because the right to free speech is is trumpeted a lot, but there are very significant uh, legally protected limitations on people's right to free speech that I, I don't think most people are aware of. And it's, you know, well, the Constitution guarantees the right to free speech. Actually, it doesn't. You know, it does in selected circumstances with selected um, with selected areas of engagement. But you're entirely correct that a private employer who has defined beforehand what they what they find to be acceptable um, is well within its rights to fire somebody if they say something that may be constitutionally protected but falls outside that because if there's any reasonable expectation that that person is speaking on behalf of the company either directly or indirectly you know then th- then that becomes of interest to the company it's a it, you know we would need lawyers to come on to talk about it because there it is a legal issue but I, you know the message i would tell people is that um you really need to understand what you can and can't say and how you are protected if you start to say stuff because i've seen this a lot in my own domain over the last couple of months where people make what I would call, frankly, ridiculous assertions about their freedom of expression, uh, particularly people who are in positions of prominence. And I think Elon is is articulating that, right? If if nothing else, there is a court of public opinion within which you will be tried. And the court of public opinion is probably the least predictable of all the different quasi-judicial proceedings within which you could find yourself. Well, and I also say, I think there are a lot of people like sitting in their cars crying after being fired who went into that meeting thinking they could argue free speech. So um... there's a lot of them and, and <laughs> it happens every single day uh, all around the world. Uh, and some, you know, in some jurisdictions, there's worse consequences than just getting fired. So I think, you know, you should uh, let's not say that we should tell people to not express themselves as they see fit. However, let's be very clear, particularly as the employee of a company um, that has a, that has a policy in this regard that, you you can suffer consequences from things that you say and do, which may be in other circumstances protected. Absolutely, uh, it, it, every there's a fine balance. There's a fine balance here in many different domains. It's really really complicated. Um, look, just in the interest of time, uh, let's move on to the 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 last two questions. I think we've got here, Brady, are kind of related. So the first is we've touched on this both in this episode and elsewhere, but again, I'll I'll appeal to you as the expert. How do you balance the need for a swift response to a crisis with the necessity for providing a well-thought-out and comprehensive statement? And then how does that fit into a long-term remediative strategy? How do you get out of this? How do you set yourself up in the first 10 seconds of a crisis to be looking good uh, two years later? Yeah, it's interesting, Mark, but that, that is the thing often, you know, you, you have the media at the door and sometimes um, the, the challenge is you have only just gotten news that, that this news is breaking, whatever the crisis news is. So I don't know how this would apply to Elon. His was also quite swift as well. Um, but I'm in favor of a, uh, obviously, a, all crisis communications 
professionals would advise is a, is a holding statement. So I think almost instantly you've got to have the capacity to write four or five sentences that typify how you're going to handle the crisis, including the fact that you may not have complete information. So an example of a holding statement would be, let's say your um, canoe manufacturing facility leaked hazardous materials into the Humber River. Um, the media like you would say, I'm, I've been made aware of this incident. You know, our company is committed to the highest environmental standards. We're going to do a review and I'll get back to you as soon as I have more information. I can speak to you again at five o'clock. Like that would be acceptable because the media may run the story. It has something kind of conciliatory and acknowledging of your values. And that if the spill happened, that it would be counter to your values and you're going to be accountable and responsible. Get that out the door as quickly as possible. And then you've got to follow up consistently with that. So creating some kind of interval or algorithmic kind of rhythm to engage with the media, be available and conduct whatever fixes you need to, to get out of the crisis, whether that's a moral fix, you might have to do some public flagellation of yourself or others, um, or an actual physical fix or paying to, in this case, clean up the hazardous material that you've dumped into the Humber River. And I just put one little asterisk beside that, and I agree with that, obviously, completely, Brady. And hopefully, you know, that is a strategy that that in my business we have followed, although not always perfectly. There are circumstances within which that initial statement is just simply that we will not be making further statements. Um, and, you know, that provides clarity uh, because there are circumstances within which matters, for example, become HR matters, and there's a confidentiality requirement. Um, there are matters within which there's a legal um, process and you don't want to damage the legal process. And there may be matters within which the, 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 the entity that the media goes to first are not actually the ones at uh, fault. So for example, let's just make up a case on the fly. You know, a, a company employs a part uh, and the actually let's here's a good one uh recently some of the listeners may have heard that there was a company that had fed into the airline industry supply chain parts that didn't have the um degree of certification that they were supposed to and records had been completely fabricated the whether or not those parts were lower quality than they should have been we don't know doesn't matter. Um, they didn't meet the auditing requirements. Their their uh, provenance couldn't be traced, and as a result of that, there was a risk to the airline and the people inside of it. You know, the company, the an, an airline company, when faced with that, would probably best just to say, "We are aware of this issue. Um, these parts were sold to us uh, with what at the time appeared to be appropriate certification." Uh, we have made efforts so that within the last two weeks, um, we have identified where all these parts are on our aircraft. We do not think any of them are mission critical. And over the next three months, we will ensure that all of those aircraft have those parts removed so that we can get back to our core mission, which is flying the citizens of X country safely and effectively around the world. And we will not be making any further comments about this case because they really don't have anything else to say, right? The, 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 the blame for this should fall on the supplier of the parts. And what they just want to do is make a graceful exit from the news cycle. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one, Mark. I, I, I just caution if a listener was trying to apply this, that 
it does take a certain sensitivity to detect when it's an okay time to say, I'll have no further comment and when it's not an okay time. So Elon Musk, for example, might be saying, this is all I'm going to say and that's it. But that issue will continue to follow him around. And so it's sort of, have you done enough remediation or is it, you know, as you said, it'll be pending the review of a legal file um, that that would be the the next the next kind of interval where you might be expected to communicate? Or is it really a situation where you could say, we're never going to say anything else about this again, no matter who asks us what. And so again, I think that takes a specific sensitivity to get that right. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, I'm not saying that, the, you know, when you're when the wheel falls off your truck, and it drives into an elementary school and kills 72 kids, and you own the trucking company, and you know, the right response is not to say I'm not making any comments. I, I mean, this is going to be informed by the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And by communications professionals and by a legal team and lots of other stuff. But there are going to be times when a company is going to want to stop their involvement in a discussion. And, you know, I think in my example, it's clear the company, the, air, the airline has identified the importance of this. They've identified the source. They have a highly effective mitigation plan. And now it's time to get them out of the conversation. And it would be hard, I think, for the media to go to that airline and write a negative story unless they just make stuff up, which people do, um, because they've, you know, what else could they ask for is kind of the bottom line. And that then transfers the the light onto uh the the part supplier which is where probably the intensity should be anyway because it really was nothing to do with the airline um, mm-hmm. it was it was to do with the part supplier agreed agreed mark All right. I, I, we should probably wrap but i think that um this elon musk situation does really serve as a good case study for a number of reasons in crisis communication so maybe i'll just run through a couple of, of thoughts we we shared before but i mean this the there's a line of sight here on a high profile individual and company and that kind of interaction, the importance of that that CEO role and the impact on public opinion in the market. So again, you and I will be watching those numbers um, and potentially bring that up as a review for next time and over the next couple of months. How does this affect the market um, and uh, the, the value of the companies? Uh, this one had an immediate and tangible business impact, which I thought was really interesting as a case study. Huge implications for public perception and potentially for brand image. I don't know when there will be good measures out of how much this has affected the Musk personal brand or public opinion. I'd love to see some polling data on that. Um, Obviously, the digital and social media amplification. This is a great example of that phenomenon where we just see this become the number one story on every outlet across. You know, it's almost a unit. We talk about us being in sort of little... um, little pods or monads or echo chambers. And this one's interesting because it's a real breakthrough event in some ways, like the crisis that can land on everyone's screen during the day. Um, complexity of response, you know, his attempt at clarification and redirection really offered us a real life example of the complexities of crafting an effective crisis communication strategy. And then this one was uh, a hot topic for cultural and ethical sens- sens- sensitivities and you know, the lack of empathy to some degree and accountability discussion. Um, then I would also just say just the general strategic communications and fu- future implications. The long-term implications of what we saw here, Mark, is uh, the statements and the response strategies can be analyzed to understand the lasting impact of crisis on a company's future, strategic directions, decisions, um, relationship with stakeholders. There's really a lot of, it's a very rich uh, material to to dive into from that lens of 
what can we learn about best practices? So um, I don't know. For me, I found this one really exciting. We'll watch this unfold, continue to dig in here. Yeah, I would agree. And we've got the word of the day for next yeah. week. Next week, monad. I didn't know that was a word. Oh, that actually, yeah, that's the new word for me. It's yeah, from yeah, Leibniz. Well, it's like it's uh, it's actually got a long history. It goes back to Greek, and it's a great wordle word. So monad will be the word of the day for the next podcast. <laughs> yeah, and this episode is brought to you by Malofluus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brady. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mark. Great talking to you. You too. Ciao.